Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, as we uh, conclude our uh, series on the Ten Commandments this evening, Uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, if you are able. Exodus 20 and verse 17, please hear the word of God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your law as it convicts us of our sin, as it reminds us of our great need for your Son and his cleansing blood righteousness, and as it serves as a guide for our lives as Christian believers. Now, Lord, as we unpack uh, this 10th commandment this evening, I pray that you would instruct our hearts, that you would rebuke and correct us and train us for all righteousness. And Lord, truly do show us once again our need for Christ and rest in him alone for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his helpful little book on the Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, begins his section on the Tenth Commandment by asking the reader to slow down when reading these familiar words. It's something that we need to do often because we become overly familiar with certain parts of Scripture and we race past them and we either think, well, these things really don't uh, pertain too much to me. Uh, these words are antiquated. These times were different. It doesn't really apply to me. And then we begin to unpack what these familiar words mean and we see that they very much do apply to our lives. And so uh, De Young says, slow down. When we do, it becomes more apparent how often we transgress this 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Indeed, how often how we covet the possessions and the relationships and the gifts or talents of others. De Young writes the following. He first lists the first part of this verse. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. They sure have a lot of nice stuff over there. I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. You know, we live in a dump. It must be nice to live somewhere so fancy and so well decorated. Why can't I have that HGTV house? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Wow, she sure is beautiful. Why couldn't my wife age like that? Safe not to say that out loud, by the way. I wish I had married someone like her. I'd be so much happier if I hadn't married my wife. Look at her husband. He is always so friendly. He's so good with the kids. He helps around the house. He fixes things. He doesn't just break them. Why am I stuck with my husband when there are so many men out there? Or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. There's the next part of the verse. Man, my car is a piece of junk. 
It's not fair. All of our friends take great vacations. They go to the Grand Canyon or Disney World. Some go to Hawaii or Europe. We're lucky if we get to go to Grandma's. Why am I stuck in this loser job? I wish my kids were more like their kids. Why do I have lame parents? Next part of the verse. Or anything that is your neighbor's. I wish I could be smart like him. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. Why couldn't I get a normal family? Why can't I run, jump, throw, or be as strong as my friends? Why is everything in my life hard when everything for everyone else is so easy? Do these kinds of thoughts sound familiar? Do you hear the secret echoes of your own hearts here? In these comments, DeYoung makes the important point that, of course, there's nothing wrong with noticing what others have. The problem is we don't stop there. We don't stop at the place of noticing what others have. Our thoughts continue to go. The thoughts of our hearts continue to go to places they should not go. And rather than being happy for others... We end up being envious of others. We end up coveting what they have and being discontent with what we have for ourselves. These things are at the heart of the Tenth Commandment. These matters are at the heart of the Tenth Commandment and expose once again not only how sinful our own hearts are, but how great our need for a Savior truly is. I was watching uh, this past week a fairly well-known evangelist who likes to go out on the streets and share the gospel uh, with people, and he begins to unpack uh, their whole system of morality. And by the time uh, he ends up talking to them and they agree that they have failed to obey the Ten Commandments, and he goes right through from from commandment one all the way through commandment 10. And at the end of that, he says, so now we are agreed that you are an idolatrous, lying, adulterous, impure, murdering, and then he kind of goes through all the uh, uh, list, uh, person. Uh, and, he, and, and he said, do you agree with that? And they're like, well, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> and he says, now what's going to happen when you die and you stand before God at the judgment? He says, well... I think that he's going to look at the whole entirety of my life and say, it's going to be okay. Go ahead and go into heaven because it wasn't that bad. He said, do you think an earthly judge, if you committed a horrible murder, would say, well, since you've done all these nice things, we're going to let the murder go. Go ahead and be free. And he said, I don't think that's going to happen. He said, well, how do you think God, who is holy, will deal with all of your sins, all of these things we've just discussed? He said, well, you have a good point there. And so what happens when we come to the Ten Commandments is one after another, we recognize truly how sinful we are in the sight of God. God is the supreme judge over all. He made us in his image. He made us for his own glory. We rebelled against him and we live in sin, and so we stand before him as 
condemned sinners. With each of the Ten Commandments, we have learned in this series that we have failed to obey God as we ought. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, if we are honest, and if we look into the mirror of God's law, what we see back is that we have entertained other gods in our hearts. We have entertained other idols in our hearts. We've not given God the glory that is due His name. We have longed for the things that this world offers to us, and we have found ourselves worshiping false gods. Second commandment, thou shalt not worship graven images. This is about how God is to be worshiped with reverence and in the way that he is prescribed in his word. And, and so we look at that and we say, well, if I'm honest, I don't worship God the way I ought to, from the heart. Thirdly, thou shalt not take the, na- the name of the Lord our God in vain. If we're honest, we recognize that we don't use God's name in the way that we should. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How many of us keep the Sabbath holy as we ought? Number five, honor your father and your mother, which pertains to all people in authority over us. Have we honored those who are in authority over us in the way that we ought? Thou shalt not kill. This doesn't just pertain to physical murder. It pertains to murder in our hearts. Oh, how we have given in to those kinds of murderous, uncharitable, hateful thoughts towards others and entertain them in our hearts. Thou shalt not commit adultery, dealing with all kinds of sexual immorality in our heads, in our hearts, sometimes in our actions. Thou shalt not steal. Have we taken from others in various ways? Have we failed to be generous towards others as we ought? Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. How often have we said things that were not true or half true or the so-called white lies? How often have we failed to keep that law? And finally, we come to number 10, thou shalt not covet. And so over and over and over again, we see in the, the, the summary of God's moral law that we have failed to keep this law. And this functions, of course, in our lives as Christians as that which exposes our sin, which shows us our great need for a Savior and points us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His life, death, and resurrection for us. And then as Christians, the law serves to be a guide to our lives so that when we read the Ten Commandments, not only do they convict us of our sin and show us our need for the Savior, They also serve as an instruction manual for the Christian life. This is how we are called to live. And so this is true for the first nine commandments, which we've looked at, and it's true for the tenth as well. As we seek to unpack this commandment tonight, we will look at it as we have done in previous weeks with the other commandments, looking first and foremost at Point number one, what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? What is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? We, we learn that this sin is a consequential one, and it's a significant one. This is not just a, a kind of throwaway, unimportant uh, sin. This is a very big sin, and we must recognize it as such. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.3 writes that, quote, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We also see in Romans chapter 1 in that, that list of, of sins 
that covetousness is listed there as well. It's a serious sin. In our larger catechism, question 148, it is asked, what are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The answer, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, our own situation, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor. So when something happens to our neighbor, who is our neighbor? Everyone, from the people you live with to the people in your community and neighborhood to your fellow church members, everyone in your sphere is your neighbor. So envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Any ways that your affections are, are and, and your, the motions of your life are, 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 um, are drawn towards those things and envying those things and grieving over the fact that they have this and you do not is forbidden in the 10th commandment. Now, so much of what this commandment is deals with the discontentment of our own situation, the dissatisfaction we have with our lives. And this is not just dealing with possessions. It's dealing with circumstances. And this is where we kind of get into the, the crevices of our heart. We start, you know, this is when uh, people in some churches say, would say, oh, Pastor, now you're meddling. You were preaching, now you're meddling. Because when we look at this, this doctrine of, 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 of contentment, we realize that it deals not just with our possessions, but with our circumstances in life. And often circumstances in life get difficult, amen? They get difficult, they get challenging. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I covetous of the lives and circumstances of others while being discontent? with my own circumstances. The Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Abraco, whom I've quoted uh, on a number of occasions during this series, he has a wonderful exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, which has helped me. He lists as one of the major things forbidden in the Tenth Commandment as dissatisfaction with our circumstances. Dissatisfaction with our present circumstances. And he writes these three things underneath that. Number one, Dissatisfaction with our circumstances in a howling emptiness and a greedy yearning for some, something which is not possessed. A howling emptiness and a greedy yearning for something which is not possessed. It's, it, I love that, that descriptive language, a howling emptiness, a greedy yearning, being dissatisfied with one's Condition and estate in life, the circumstances, the possessions, the relationships, what have you, and, and yearning for something which is not possessed. Of course, when having this kind of an approach, and we're going to see this, going to see this uh, uh, again and again tonight, this is basically saying that, God, you are not enough for me, and what you have given to me is not enough. You are not enough. That's the ultimate thing we're saying. Dissatisfied with you, O oh God, and what you've given to me is not enough. The second thing, dissatisfaction with our current circumstances in a restlessness 
fretfulness and stirring of the heart due to not having that which could satisfy, even though it is not limited to a specific thing. It just wants to have something. There's just something missing. Always thinking there's something missing. I don't, I don't have what I need to be happy, and there's something out there that's going to make me happy. God is not fulfilling that for me. There must be something else. Thirdly, dissatisfaction with our current circumstances in an active lust or desire for something which appears to be able to delight the heart. In other words, if I only had this or that, I would be happy. Here's the thing, beloved, which I touched upon a moment ago. God made us for himself. He wired us together. He made us according to and in his own image for himself, to have fellowship with himself, to have communion with God. That's how he made us to do that. And so when we are not doing that, when we are not in communion with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and with God's people, then, of course, we are not fulfilling that design and purpose for which God made us. There's a C.S. Lewis that said, you want happiness, a general kind of happiness? A bottle of port can do that. Now, maybe you don't like port, I don't know. Let's say an ice cream cone or whatever. But, you know, there are certain things in life that can give you that, that happiness, that fleeting kind of happiness, which we're always kind of having from time to time, getting certain places, certain circumstances. But if you want to have real fulfillment and contentment in life, you must be in relationship with God. He made you for himself. And apart from him, you will have restlessness. That's what Augustine said, isn't it? You will be restless until you find your rest in God. Trying to find contentment outside of God is the height of foolishness because he has made you to have fellowship with him. And that's true contentment. That's what true contentment comes from. Again, when we rest and delight in God, our restless souls become quieted and content. If someone were to come to me and say, you know, John, I've just felt this restlessness and discontentment my whole life. My next question would be, do you know God? Do you know God? Do you have a, a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you in fellowship with God? Because apart from that, you will be restless and discontent your entire life. I love what Jeremiah Burroughs says in his classic book. By the way, I will commend this book to you. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, published by the Banner of Truth. He says this, quote, My brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. You will not find contentment by having stuff or getting more stuff. If you, you know, a lot of times people think, if I just had this 
new thing or this new car, this new house or this new relationship or this new position, then I will be content. And what happens, and those of you that have had kind of some upward mobility in your lives and you've got some age on you and some gray hair and have had some of that success, you realize that once you're there, discontentment begins to come in again when your heart is drawn away by these things, right? Don't find your your contentment in the Lord. As Christian believers, find our rest and our satisfaction and our contentment in God himself. And then we are content with the things that he has given to us and we hold them with an open hand. And we trust him for all things. So that's what's forbidden in the 10th commandment. Now, what is required in the 10th commandment? What is required in the 10th commandment? Question 147 of the larger catechism states this. By the way, can I just say this again? In all of our reformed confessions, we have wonderful expositions of the 10 commandments. Go to them, learn from them, see the summaries, see the explanations. They're so helpful. What is required in the 10th commandment? Question 147. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. And so it's a satisfaction in God. It's a contentment of our own condition, and it's a charitable frame towards those who have what we don't have, and we are genuinely happy for them and genuinely celebrating that without the inward motions of our hearts longing to have what they have, whether it's all those things we mentioned at the outset of this message when I was quoting DeYoung's little section there. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have that husband or that wife or, or those children or, or that house or, or that car or that situation or that job or whatever or those parents. That is covetousness and it's poison and it demonstrates a heart that has wandered away from the Lord and recognizing that He is enough. He is all you need. Now, I understand, you know, I'm not being hyper-spiritual here. I know we need, you know, money to pay the bills and we need food to, uh, to nourish our bodies and there are certain physical needs that we have. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize life, but generally speaking, the Lord is all that we really need and we can trust Him and we can be content in Him and with all that He has given to us. Over the years, I've had the privilege of traveling to numerous third world countries, uh, ministering um, in South America and Ecuador and Peru and Brazil. And I've, I've been around some of the, the, the poorest people uh, in the world. And what is extraordinary in being in those settings is to see the joy and the contentment in the hearts of God's people who have so little and whose lives are so difficult. It's one dear family. I went to visit them, and I, I was taken back by their, their, their living situation. 
their kids came to VBS every day, and I found out that they needed some help with some school uniforms, and so we went to the, uh, to the market, and we got them school uniforms and a few school supplies, and I, I walked with them back to their house, and I realized, wow, this isn't a house. This is just a little dwelling. Five children, mother and father, in one room, dirt floors, one bed that they all slept in. No kitchen, of course. They had a little fire pit right outside of this room where they cooked all their things, and they typically had soup for their meals. Once a week, they would have a little meat in their soup. This family, while life was hard, were, from all I can tell, happy, joyful. We think that having stuff and having more stuff is the only way that will give us contentment. That's what everybody wants us to believe in Western culture. But we know this not to be true. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul, where he speaks of being content in all circumstances. He said in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You see, the, the Philippians, if you remember back to chapter 1, were concerned about Paul because he had been imprisoned, and they were worried about him. They were worried about the church, what was going to happen. And Paul was saying, don't worry about me. What, as we heard from Genesis 50 that Pastor Michael read earlier, what, what man intended for evil, God intends for what? For good. And so Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and Paul says, actually, the gospel is going forth because I'm here. And the Praetorian Guard is hearing the gospel and people are being converted. And this would have never happened unless I was here in prison. And so, so Paul says, I'm here in chains, but the gospel is not chained. The word of God is not chained. It goes forth. And so in that context, Paul writes again in chapter 4, three chapters later, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to tell me. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You hear that? The Apostle Paul says, I have learned... He's in the school of Christ. He has learned in whatever situation he is to be content. We learn elsewhere that Paul was beaten, shipwrecked, left out to sea, left for dead. Went through all kinds of persecution, but he learned to be content. Then in verse 12, he says this. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it's typical that you see this last part of this section. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And there's someone like throwing a discus at the Olympics or something like that. But it's totally taken out of context. When Paul says here, I can do all things through him who strengthened me, he's talking about contentment 
in all circumstances, whether it's with an abundance of things or with a lack thereof. He's learned contentment with an abundance and in hunger, with much and with being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So finally, we come to the gospel and the 10th commandment. You know, when we think of Christ, the one who came here, was sent here to do that which you and I fail to do every day, namely to obey the law of God, to fulfill the requirements of the law. You and I wake up every morning, and from, from, the, day, from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, we do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We break all of these commands in some measure. And so God sent his son into the world to perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law. And then as that perfect law keeper went to the cross, bore your sins and mine, bore the wrath of God for our sins and atoned for our sins, that by grace through faith in him, we would have forgiveness and everlasting life. So Christ obeyed the law. He obeyed every single one of the Ten Commandments. He was the perfectly content man. He was the perfectly content man. Apostle Paul sought to be content, but he wasn't perfectly content. Christ had nowhere to lay his head. Devils were constantly after him. The religious leaders and the political leaders hated him and threatened him and sought to persecute him and to kill him. His friends abandoned him in his hour of need. He then experienced God's wrath on the cross for you and for me. And all the while, he was content with the love of his father and content with the purpose that his father had for him to fulfill. The Lord Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, is a perfectly content man who stood in our place on the cross to bear all of our sins of discontentment and covetousness. Jesus never coveted once. He was never discontent once with his father. He was the perfect law keeper. He laid his life down on the cross for us. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Dear ones, brought into union with Christ, by grace through faith, we are justified. And in union with Christ, we are adopted into God's family and we are being sanctified. And in union with Christ, then, we are seeking to be content in the Lord, to not covet, because we know coveting is a sin against God and against our neighbor. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Paul exhorts Timothy and says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Would you make this a prayer this week? Lord, grant me the grace to grow in contentment even when my circumstances are difficult, even when there are challenges in my life that I am facing, give me that contentment. You know, Burroughs in his book, Jeremiah Burroughs, that 17th century Puritan that wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian uh, Contentment, he, he brings up a point which really comes up uh, as a point of application in Genesis chapter 50. He says something to the effect of, you know, we have no idea really what the biggest picture is when God is at work in our lives and bringing things into our lives. We don't see the whole mosaic all at once like God does. And so when certain things are happening in our lives, you know, we tend to question, we tend to doubt, we tend to be discontent. But what Burroughs is saying is that we ought to be content even in the midst of our challenging circumstances because we trust the Lord that He is at work to bring all things together for good for us because we don't know how things are going to play out as it concerns these various challenges, right? So when a difficulty arises, when a thorny circumstance emerges in our lives, we should pursue contentment in the Lord even though it's painful because we trust Him. And when we think of Genesis 50, think of what happened to Joseph. Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers, left for dead. He's sold into slavery thereafter. And he is, uh, goes through all these difficult circumstances uh, with Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him. He's going to jail. And then finally, many, many years later, God has him in this place where he will rise up to second in command of the entire most powerful nation in the world in Egypt and he is the one through whom God supplies bread to the world and to save his covenant people from starvation. And then he brings them in and puts them uh, in, in, the, in the finest pasture lands for the sheep of all of his descendants. Now, while Joseph was going through all of the betrayal of his brothers and all the challenges of being in prison and all those terrible circumstances, Joseph had to either be content or discontent in the Lord. Now, I'm sure he had his ebbs and flows, just like, just like we all do. But that's the point, is the end, while it, not be, it might not be so abundantly clear as it is in Joseph's story, is that we can trust God because he's working out all things for his glory. The reason why he often brings challenges into our lives is because he knows exactly what we need to humble us and to keep us on our knees in prayer and trusting the Lord. If it's always a mountaintop experience, forget him. And so we can be thankful and content with what he gives us and what he takes away from us and what he does not give to us that we think we might need. But godliness, Paul writes, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By the way, it says the love of money is the root of all evil, not money is the root of all evil. 
The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, beloveds, as we wrap up this series on the Ten Commandments, let us once again be reminded that the reason why we confess these Ten Commandments as a congregation so regularly in our morning and sometimes evening worship services is to not only restrain sin in our lives, but to expose sin in our lives because the law, as Calvin says, is like a mirror. And when we look into it, we see, if we understand it properly, we see our sin and then we look away from ourselves for salvation and we look to Christ, the sinless one, who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross for us. And we trust in him and not in ourselves for our salvation. And then as Christian believers, we see that we have a field manual, a guide for the Christian life found in this summary of the law. And in this instance, we are encouraged not to live lives of covetousness and discontentedness, but rather lives content in the Lord and with the circumstances and possessions that he's given to us. And we are having charitable frames and affections towards those who have things that perhaps we would one day like to have or to experience, but we're so happy for them and joyful for them, and we are content with our own circumstances. May we rest our faith in Christ alone for our salvation, and may we seek not to live in covetousness, which is hard in our culture when constantly things are being dangled out in front of us on TV, uh, on, uh, on social media, uh, on the internet, uh, on various things, dang always dangling in front of us the next thing that you need to be content. We must say no to those things and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And may his loveliness and beauty and saving work be that which quiets our hearts to all these worldly allurements and gives us that rare jewel of Christian contentment by the Spirit of God that God longs for us to have and ultimately to be content in Him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the truth of it, and Lord, it stings because every one of us in this room finds ourselves discontent with our circumstances. Forgive us, Lord, for this wicked sin Forgive us, Lord, for not finding our contentment in you, in your greatness and loveliness and, and beauty and power and truth. Forgive us, Lord, for giving you so little of our attention and our trust and looking to this world to fulfill that which can only be fulfilled in you. Father, we thank you for your son who gave his life for covetous sinners like us. We pray that in him, by grace through faith, that we would grow to covet less, be content more and more, to be like our Savior, who was perfectly content, 
that we would grow more and more to be like him, knowing that inner corruption will remain with us till the day we die, but that we would die more and more now to sin, the sin of covetousness, and live more and more to righteousness and godly contentment. For godliness and contentment are great gain. And we receive all the glory in Jesus' name.